Hebrews chapter number 2. Hebrews chapter number 2. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 as we continue our exposition here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, We spent about eight weeks in chapter number 1. And so now we have arrived here at chapter 2. And our subject this morning is simply so great salvation. So great salvation. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's read the first four verses together. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His own will. In this second chapter, the writer, writing already from the perspective of what we learned in chapter 1 about the superior excellence of Christ and about the superior excellence of the gospel, uh, now urges believers, who's his primary audience, to a more diligent and more defining attention that they should pay to the gospel. To pay a diligent attention to is to be specifically concerned primarily with the doctrine of it, but also with the practical truth of it. As we say around here often, uh, doctrine is only as good as its practicality, and practicality in the spiritual things is only as good as its doctrine. In other words, doctrine that's not followed by practical living really becomes not doctrine at all, and practical Christian living with no doctrine becomes of no value at all. These two things go together. Doctrine determines how we live, and of course we live according to that. But he begins to add another motive to this. And he gives a very specific warning. And it's found there in verse 1. Of course, we see, we'll expound this in totality here in a moment. But he says, therefore, as a result of everything we've heard in chapter 1, we ought to give the more earnest heed or attention to the things which we have heard. And here's the warning, lest at any time we should let them slip. The word slip in this particular version is an interesting word. Depending on what version you have, it may have another word there, but that word slip means to run out. It actually means to run out like a leaky vessel, like a cup or a bowl that has a hole in it. You put water in it and you may not be able to see it. It may not be apparent, but the water begins to run out of it because it is a leaky vessel. There's a warning here that he gives to believers that he says, you, brethren, ought to give more diligent heed to the things that you've heard because there's the possibility that they might leak out. It begins to make you wonder what exactly is the writer talking about? Is he talking about a loss of salvation? Is he talking about a a loss of knowledge? Or what exactly is he referring to? But we notice that he also is going to give the results of this thought, and he is in verse 2, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast. 
Now, we talked about in chapter 1 about the angels and the role that the angels played, that the angels were not higher than Jesus, that they were used as messengers, they were used to deliver God's message, and that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the reality of the message that the angels delivered, of course, uh, in the Old Testament, specifically to the law. And this is really the second argument that he's making. He's making the argument that these doctrines could slip, but that secondly, how could we escape if we let these things slip away from us if there was a payment or a penalty if transgression against the law occurred? There is no exemption. There is no exemption. And how shall a person escape divine punishment if they neglected and despised the gospel? That's really what's at the heart here. The gospel is the doctrine of salvation. When we talk about the gospel, we are not talking about a program. We're not talking about a philosophy. We're not talking about something that just sounds, sounds like it all goes together. We are talking about the actual doctrine of salvation. If I talk to an individual about salvation, I cannot talk to them about salvation without talking the gospel. I cannot get into a situation where uh, some have said, well, we don't use the word gospel anymore. We just simply use, uh, we just, we're going to have a talk with you. We're going we're to tell you some good things. And yes, the gospel was good news. But the gospel is more than just good news. It's the doctrine of salvation. It's the doctrine of salvation that finds its only hope and its only steadfast and sure standing in Christ alone and in the righteousness of Christ and His shed blood. This is not a matter of splitting hairs over. Uh, it, is, it is difficult for us to, to simply just say, well, uh, you have your way, I have my way. We just don't call it the gospel. We don't call it the doctrine of salvation because we don't want to offend anyone. I can tell you that the gospel is not offensive to believers. Uh, just like that song, no condemnation. That's why that's the two most beautiful words to a believer. I am no longer condemned for what I did. I'm no longer condemned for my sin. I'm no longer headed to a hell separated from Christ for all of eternity. I'm no longer under condemnation. Yet I should be. So how would it be that I could possibly, how could I possibly neglect Something so beautiful as that. Well, that's what he has in mind here. How could we neglect something that is so beautiful and so right in front of us? Yet here is that warning. So let's ask the question this morning, uh, why is it such a terrible thing to reject the gospel? Why is it so terrible? Is the ultimate terrible idea that we miss heaven, or is the idea that there's something more? Well, in this text, in these first four verses, and really throughout the entirety of chapter 2, the writer is expounding on man's greatest need. Man's greatest need is not riches. Man's greatest need is, is not prosperity. Man's greatest need is salvation. Man's greatest need is deliverance from his sin that has uh, violated and has hindered and keeps his standing before God. Uh, he cannot stand before God. No man can stand before God in his sin. Sin is too wicked for God to even look upon. And yet, we have here that there is this warning of a rejection. Salvation is an important matter because of the very weight of it. Salvation is a weighty doctrine. Salvation is a weighty uh, teaching because it has so many lines to it. So what if a man rejects it? 
Shouldn't all men just reject what they choose and have the opportunity to choose for themselves what they want to do? And we already know what man would choose left to himself. Man would choose his own way and he would call anything he wanted to right in his own eyes as long as it appealed to him. That's the scriptural teaching. Leave a man to himself, that man will say, that's right in my eyes. I don't care if it's right in yours, but it's right in mine. Salvation is not a... It's not a choice. It's not, hey, do you want salvation? Is this important to you or not? Is it it important? If we say no to salvation, we're not saying no to a philosophy. You're saying no to God. Okay, To, to reject the things of God is to say no to God. If a man stands up and preaches the gospel to you and you tell him no, you're not rejecting that man. You're rejecting God. You're not even ultimately offending me. You're offending God. And I think it would be wise for all of us to remember uh, the offense is not us. If somebody doesn't receive the message of the gospel, you're not the one being offended. It's not your gospel. It's not your doctrine. You're not the owner of it. You've just been entrusted with it as a steward to give it and to preach it. But why is it a dangerous thing to simply say no or to reject God's gracious gift. How did he put forth that gift? He put forth that gift in the person of Jesus Christ. A gospel that begins with anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ is not a gospel. Mark it down. That is true across the board. If your gospel does not begin with Jesus Christ and end with Jesus Christ, you are not preaching a gospel, you're preaching a philosophy. And your philosophy is as, is as light as the falling leaf off the tree. It will simply just blow away when the wind gets strong enough. But salvation is a weighty matter. It is a matter that is of weight because the very idea, and we'll talk about this, of who the author of it is. The gospel is God's ultimate gift. He has given that gift by putting forth His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who do accept salvation are given, which is man's greatest possible gift. It's eternal life and peace with God for all of eternity. But ultimately, salvation, as we've already learned, is not as much about us as it is about God. Salvation is not man-centered, it's God-centered. Which means it is the very God of the universe who has the determining factor and he has the authority and the right to determine the terms in which this gospel will be in fact administered. Man does not have the right, nor more importantly the authority, to take the gospel, to twist it and contort it and to turn it into something just to appeal to the flesh of man. He simply must take what the gospel is, what the Bible says, and says this is the gospel. There is no amendments made. Yet, the gospel, as God's ultimate gift, as the only thing that can free man from sin and from the coming judgment. Make no mistake about it, judgment day is coming. There is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will judge all of mankind. He is seated upon a throne and he will be the one that every individual will give an answer to. Saved and unsaved. Believing and unbelieving. All will give an account. And every knee will bow and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even the unbelieving soul that's been cast into hell will still confess Christ. 
Because ultimately, he is the gospel. He is the doctrine of salvation. This text, the writer is calling each and every one of us to truly examine ourselves. Asking, asking the question, am I rejecting the gospel? And I'm not just asking the unbeliever here today. I'm asking even the believer here because the warning is not just for unbelievers. He says, therefore, we, he's referring to believers. Are you believers allowing the gospel to slip? I fear sometimes with our church, I fear sometimes that we talk about the gospel so much and we talk about grace so much that we begin to take it for granted and we begin to say, well, I know what our preacher's going to talk about. He always talks about gospel. He always talks about the grace. He always talks about salvation. We've heard this, we've heard this, we've heard this. And there's the first warning sign. Because if you grow tired of the very thing in which the gospel is, this is the beginning of that slipping. This is the beginning of that leaky vessel that now begins to just slowly trickle out and suddenly we become, a, we become hardened to the reality of what this ultimate gift really is. Now, of course, my greatest concern today is those that may be here today who have never repented of their sins. They've never believed on Christ. I would plead with you today above all else that you stop rejecting the gospel and you run to Christ as quickly as you can and you run and you throw yourself upon him and you beg him for mercy and you say, God, save me from my sin. And I would tell you that whether we're standing here or we're standing in the parking lot, I would tell you that's, that's what you need today. Do not reject the gospel. And if you are a believer, don't let it slip. We have to examine ourselves and ask ourselves that question. You're not asking the question for your spouse. You're not even asking that question for your children right now. You're asking that question for yourself. Am I letting the gospel, my salvation and my knowledge and the doctrines of it, am I letting it slip? This is not an inconsequential question. With that, am I trusting in Christ alone as my only hope? Hope is a funny thing. I don't mean that in a humorous way, but it's a funny thing when we say we have hope in something until everything else around it is gone. It's easy to say I have hope in Christ if everything else is in order, if everything else is going the way it should go, but what about if everything else is gone, is your hope still in Christ alone? As Job came to the end of everything that was happening and he lost everything by the permission of a sovereign God that allowed his suffering, allowed all these things to happen in his life because Satan had to come and ask permission to the sovereign authority of the universe. Can I come at Job? And God himself said, yes, you can come at Job, but you cannot nor will you not touch Job's life. That's the very reason why Satan didn't take Job's life because God said you can't have it. And that's the way life is, folks. There is nothing that happens in this world that God does not allow or ordain. Because he's the authority. So we come to the gospel and we say, does God really have the authority to say there's only one way? He absolutely does. Because he is the only authority in all the universe. There is no other authority. Now we have authorities at state and federal. We have, a, we have people, there's a whole line of submission to authority. We're not going to get into that today. We all know what those authority figures are. And we have a responsibility to submit to authority. But when it comes to the gospel, why do people feel the need 
to begin to try to manipulate it into something that the Bible does not say that it is. We begin to neglect it when we begin to even despise its terms. It's the most important question any of us can ask today is, am I neglecting so great a salvation? There is a penalty for rejecting it. What does the writer again say? He says, therefore, this simply means that since God has spoken to us by the Son Himself, we now have a full revelation of God's mercy and righteousness in Christ. There's nothing else you need to wait for today. If you are unconverted today, there's no other piece of doctrine, theology. There's not another Bible verse that you need. You know Christ has been presented before you. Everyone sitting in this room today, Christ and His righteousness is being presented before you. There's no other book you need to run to the bookstore and buy. He's presented right before you, and it is now the command is to repent and believe the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ alone to take the sins that you are guilty of and remove them. Nobody here today can say, I've never heard of Jesus Christ now. Every one of you is now accountable to what you've heard. And yet, this therefore, God has spoken to us, we have a full revelation. Christ, who is, as we learned in chapter 1, is above all angels, he's above all prophets, he's above all priests, has preached the gospel of redemption. Jesus Christ came preaching repentance and preaching redemption. So what is the result? We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard from Him. Because we've heard it. If you're a believer today, because you've heard it, give more diligent heed. If you're an unbeliever, because you've heard it, give more diligent heed. If you came today with really no desire to listen, I would encourage you, give earnest heed. Give earnest heed to what's being said. Don't listen to my voice, listen to the Spirit of God. Listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. I am just a mere man standing here, fallible in every same way that you are. I'll probably misspeak. I'll probably say something wrong. I'll probably get in the flesh a time or two. I want you to listen to the Spirit of God. Fallible man has been given the responsibility to deliver this message of so great salvation, and we're warned not to neglect it. In these four verses, the writer gives us several reasons why we should give the more earnest heed to what Christ has said. First of all, I believe, is that Christ is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And for those of you that are waiting for someone else to come and deliver another message, there is no other messenger coming. For the nation of Israel who stands waiting for their Messiah to come, He's already come. There is not another Messiah coming. There is not another messenger coming. As Paul's prayer for Israel was, is that they would be saved. Your Messiah has already come. The messenger's already here. Folks, there is no other messenger coming. You already have the full revelation of God in the Scriptures. We give earnest heed. In John 3.36, John's testimony about Jesus was simply this, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You're in one of two places today. You're either under the condemnation of God, or you're in the family of God. There is no in-between. There is no such thing as I'm straddling the fence between doing this God thing or not doing this God thing. And by the way, 
salvation is not a God thing that we just refer to in these kind of terminologies. This is the most weighty matter you're ever going to be confronted with. And yet, he clearly says, John says, if you don't believe on the Son, you don't have everlasting life. You actually have the wrath of God abiding on you. There's no more frightening thing to consider than to say, to think I have the wrath of God abiding on me right this minute. But there's also no more glorious comfort to say no condemnation. There's no condemnation on me now. Not because I'm here in church, not because I'm worthy, but because he is worthy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, which is one of those great reminder passages, sometimes we read it. Peter writes these words in verse 18, For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. You're not going to see another one. Run far away from a person that says there's a new messenger. And I'm telling you, if you're sitting in a church that tells you there's a new messenger, get up and leave. And this is not the only church that has the truth. I'm not saying that at all. But if a person says there's another messenger coming, get up and leave. There is no other messenger coming. The messenger is coming. There's the second coming. It is, it is coming. There is no way to stop it. There's no way to prevent it. And I, I don't want to stop it. I'm looking for his return. It's the only thing that allows you to live this life in the dark world and perilous times we live in. If you have no hope in Jesus Christ, you have no hope at all. But I'm not calling you to come to Christ so that you'll have a better day tomorrow. I'm calling you to Christ because that's your only way. You don't have another choice. And yet, we're told that who by Him do believe in God that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. I pray for every family in this church, especially for your children, that exact thing. That your kids would have faith and hope in God. I don't pray that your kids will have prosperous lives. I don't. I pray that they'd have faith and hope in God. And that they would have that faith and hope at God's appointed time. I know I can't force it. You can't force it. But when that faith and hope comes, you are going to see the glory of God on full display. Christ the Messiah is the, number, the first reason. Why? Because, secondly, lest we let them slip away. You let things slip by not receiving them when they are preached. By being taken up with other things. Neglecting them. Removing ourselves from where they are preached. You know what makes us remove ourselves when the Word of God is preached? It's a hardness of heart. A little bit of a confession to you this morning, not because I need you to forgive me or accept it. I remember as a young man, I would sit in a church service. This is after, it is after I believe I was converted. I've since had a lot of thoughts on this. And again, that's for another day. 
But I can remember sitting during the church service, especially during the time the preaching would start. That was often the time that I needed to get up and go do something else. That was the time I got up from the service and had to go to the restroom or had to go do something else. It, it was me trying to avoid it. Now, why in the world would somebody who's supposedly so in love with the Lord and so converted, why? And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to bring with a broad brush, but I'm speaking for me. I know what I was doing. I know what I was doing. I didn't want to be bothered with listening to the preaching again. I didn't want to hear it again. And yet I was supposed to be a converted person. How did I know that? Because it was written in my red Bible. I've told you this. It was written in my Bible. This means I'm converted, yet I didn't have a love for the things of God. I didn't love going to church. I'm, I'm one of those Christian kids whose parents drugged them to church. Literally drugged them. I was in a Christian family. I grew up in a Christian. All of us Christian families are safe, right? Mom and dad were saved. I'm in a Christian family. What? I'm, I'm in. I've since told you, I don't think I was in at that age. I still have that red Bible that says I was in on that date. I have that red Bible that says I was in on that date and baptized on this date. And yet that's not my salvation testimony anymore. My heart was hardened to the things even at a young age. Then later on, I started getting a little bit interested in the things of God. Church became a little bit more interesting. But that was fleeting. And then I got into college and decided, college, I'm just going to do my own thing. That's what I did. Did my own thing. God was just... There, if it was convenient, if, he wasn't, if it wasn't convenient, then I just, I just don't bother with that. I know what it actually is to neglect it and to feel like it has slipped away. When you read passages like this, and this is something that you've gone through and you realize that this is, he's not talking about something that is just this hypothetical situation. There are times I have so neglected my salvation even at times when I, I had settled all those matters and even when I thought I was walking best with the Lord, I would wake up one day and say, you know what, I've let a few things slip. And I'm not talking about necessarily temporal things. I'm talking about the doctrines of salvation and the things that are so precious to me now. Jesus in John chapter number 12 speaks about this. And this is really in a, in a passage of Jesus dealing with people who absolutely refused to believe. He says in verse 37, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. I hear that a lot. If Jesus would just do a miracle, I'll believe on him. And my response to them is, no, you won't. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Now notice, they didn't believe on him because of the saying of Isaiah. Did you notice what's being said here? <laughs> this is one of those disputed texts. The reason that they didn't believe was because the prophet, prophecy was being fulfilled. Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, 
He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth, he that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. He's of course referencing the Father. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. He's of course referencing the Father. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If you're sitting in darkness today, you're sitting there because you refuse to believe. Don't blame God for your refusal. Don't, don't blame God for it. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. So we let these things slip by not receiving them when they're preached. There was nothing in God's obligation to open my eyes, to allow me to see, and allow me to hear. God would have been full within his rights to saying, listen, that young man right there has heard the truth over and over and over again. He's grown up in a Christian home. He's been at church every single time the doors are open. There's no, I had no, God had no obligation to open my eyes. He didn't have an obligation to open your eyes. How many times have we hardened our hearts against the things of God and yet God in His mercy continues to still show us. He continues to still provide. He continues to still show us the truths that we can discern. And yet, He could very well just say, you know what, I'm going to allow that heart to harden itself. And then He says something very alarming here. He says, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, in other words, it was sure, it was certain, back in Hebrews... If the message that was given through angels, that is the very law that was spoken by the angels to Moses, if it was authentic, which we know it is, and yet there was still disobedience, that's what he means by every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. In other words, a refusal to follow the law ended up in a rightful, just penalty. In other words, if the message was given by the angels to Moses and man rejected the law, did he receive a just, equitable payment for his refusal? The answer is absolutely right. If you have disobeyed the law, you deserve the punishment. As we've said, if you get pulled over for speeding, you deserve the punishment. Don't get somebody to feel sorry for you and why I did it. If you broke the law, you deserve the punishment. And he's saying that very thing. If that was authentic, and it was, and God within that gave a just recompense of reward. In other words, gave you what you deserved for rejecting the law. He asked this question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation based upon what you know? There have been hard people that I have dealt with over the years 
And I've gone through, again, I'm, I'm not trying to personalize this. So I, I think folks, most of you know, I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to give you an example. I've known people that were so hardened to the things of the gospel and so things hard to these things. And I tried every way to get them, convince them of what the words I was saying. I have never once successfully changed anybody's mind with regard to this. Now, maybe you're, maybe you're a better person than I am and you have a way of persuasion. I, I've never convinced anybody by trying to convince them with my own words. But I have watched the gospel preached and proclaimed and I've watched it change people's lives right before my eyes and I've watched conviction come over a place and I have watched people know from that moment, look, I don't know what just happened, but I know Jesus Christ just saved me. And it's interesting because they don't come saying, I just did this, 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 and this. What they say is, Jesus Christ just saved me. What do, we, what do we attribute this to? We attribute this that there's a responsibility and accountability that comes as a result of what we hear. And if there's a punishment for those who heard it and rejected it, how in the world do we think we can just reject it and that somehow, look, if I'm wrong, and when I get on the other side, God's too loving and too good. He's not going to allow bad things to happen to me. Listen, man chooses his way. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. You are responsible for what you respond today with. How do we escape if we refuse so great a salvation that's been declared by the Lord himself? You and I know so much more than what the Old Testament saint even had a clue about. Your level of knowledge, and this, this kind of blows people's minds when I say this, your level of knowledge because of what's in front of you surpasses the knowledge of what we call the heroes of the Old Testament. You truly, from a biblical perspective, scriptural knowledge, knowing what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen, you and I know more than Abraham did. It's just the truth of the The Bible was not completed yet. Abraham didn't. Abraham couldn't tell his flock and his family, hey, turn to Hebrews, would you? Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Our family devotions tonight is going to be Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to talk about neglecting so great salvation. Abraham has no clue about Hebrews. He has no clue about what... And yet, think about it. Think about who he is. Think about who his family is. And yet, we know more than what they even knew. It's a great salvation because of the author. The author is God. Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9 tells us who the author is. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. This is Christ. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Jesus Christ is the author of this great salvation. It's a so great salvation because of the wisdom that's contained in it. Romans 3 verses 25 and 26 remind us, and these are familiar verses to most of us. Romans 3.25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Thirdly, it is so great salvation because of the cost of it. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, Paul wrote these words, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The price, of course, was the blood of Christ. 
There is no such thing, hear me well, as my body, my choice. That's your proof text right there. If, uh, if you're all into proof texts, <laughs> it's not your choice. It's not your body. You were bought with a price. If you paid the price for your own body, then you get to choose. I've yet to meet a person that's paid for their own body. So you don't have a choice. You see, it's all about the authority and submission to God. Man hates it. Psalm 14, man is corrupt. There's none righteous, no, not one. They won't seek after God. Psalm 14 is connected with Romans 3. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that want His righteousness. There's none that come after God. And yet, the cost is the precious blood of Christ. It's so great salvation because of the power of it. What does it actually do? Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. But then it tells us there in the last two verses there, which was first begun to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. You see, the gospel was first of all spoken by the Lord himself. The apostles confirmed what the Lord had said. It was established and confirmed and endorsed by the Father. The apostles were given, given great gifts to confirm the gospel. And they were given the ability to show these marvelous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The apostles spoke for God. They spoke the truth. They did not speak in an ununderstandable language of spiritual gibberish. They spoke in actual languages so that people could hear in their own language. They heard those things. They healed the sick. They even raised the dead. And they even cast out demons. Mark 16, verses 14 through 18. What does it mean to have something confirmed? It means that there is more than ample evidence for that which is being spoken. There are people who will believe more on the internet what they read than they will the gospel. And all I can say is foolish, foolish, foolish. Because most of what you read isn't true. No matter what people tell you to believe, the foolishness that's got Christians all worked up because they've got their eyes too much on the foolishness of man and they don't have their eyes on the Scriptures enough. If the last 18 to 20 months has not shaken you out of your dependence upon what the world tells you, I don't know what will shake you. But that's not the reason I'm calling you to Christ today. I'm not calling you to Christ just because I want you to see something other than the media. I'm calling you to Christ because I want you to see the ultimate source of hope and the meaning of your greatest need. Your greatest need is salvation. Your greatest need is to repent and believe the gospel and to call upon this Lord who has been confirmed by many witnesses. Christ has proved to be the superior to the angels. He's proved that this doctrine is true. 
But you know what? He also knows that our minds and even our memories are like a leaky vessel. As we get older, we realize they leak a little bit further and a little bit quicker, right? We don't remember what we used to. We don't think about things like we used to. But you know what? There are some things that when it gets poured into us, we never forget it. I am full of a lot of useless information. I really am. There's things up here that have no value at all. I have never let them slip. Matter of fact, I can't even forget them. It's just there. You know why it's there and you know why it's so secure? It's because I spent so much time thinking about that, reading about that, talking about that. I can't get it out of my mind. But when it comes to the things of God, we tend to be in a spiritual realm, we kind of become that leaky vessel that allows things to slip out because we don't pay enough attention to it. That's the corruption of our nature. Our flesh wants the things that are, quote-unquote, more enjoyable. Our temptations, our worldly concerns, take the forefront. Really, what sinning against what the neglect of salvation is, it's to sin against the gospel. It's to hold the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ in contempt. It's to treat it as if it's not to be trusted. It is not to be counted upon. And I can tell you, there is no greater trust to put your faith and hope and trust in than Jesus Christ. I don't care what you go home and read about today. There's no, there's no hope in it. There's no eternal in it. There's no lasting in it. We neglect the gospel when we make light of it. We ne- neglect the gospel and the salvation when we don't care for it. And we don't regard its worth. One of the most telling signs of a person who has reached a place I think is the most dangerous place, only Christ knows the heart, is when a person says, I just don't want anything to do with it. So what makes you think that you escape if you neglect it today? Again, I'm not manipulating you emotionally. I will have no desire for that. I'm just stating it as the, as the Scripture stated Do I have a promise of everything going to be all right if I just do whatever I want? No, there's obviously there's a penalty for it. The Lord's judgment under the gospel are spiritual judgments primarily. Man falls into this, this fallacy that because bad things aren't happening in this life, God's not really angry with man because where is the promise of His coming? We've been talking about this. The preacher that I used to try to get out of listening to would talk, tell us every single Sunday and every single Wednesday that Jesus is coming again. That's been 40-some years ago. He would, say it, he would say it every He'd say it at the end of every sermon. He'd, give, he'd talk about the gospel every single sermon, and it was, it's, it was always there. I could get pessimistic and say, I've been hearing this for 40 years. He's not coming. He's coming. He's coming to judge. He is, he is the ultimate judge. But what counts as neglect? Let me just finish with this. What counts as neglect? To neglect a child in any way would be unthinkable. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. How much neglect of a child is okay? 
I say none. So how much neglect of the gospel is okay? If I just simply say, you know, I'm, I'm all for the heaven thing. I'm all for getting to heaven. Don't really want to hear a lot about judgment. Don't really want to hear a lot about anything other than that. Don't want to hear about hell. Don't want to hear about the necessary of blood. I, I just, just tell me about heaven. Am I actually hearing the whole gospel then if I'm just promising somebody heaven? No. Heaven means nothing to a person unless they know the reality of everything around it. Ultimately, your salvation is not so you get to go to heaven. That's not the main purpose. God's glory is the main purpose of your salvation. Yeah, we neglect it when we think the gospel's about me. No, the gospel's not about you. It's not about myself. It's about his glory. God, throughout all of eternity, has sent prophets, he sent preachers, he sent confirmations, he sent the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's qualified people to do the work which they were called all according to his will, Hebrews says here. It was the will of God that you would have a sure ground of your faith so that you never, ever, ever have to say, I wonder if I'm truly in the family of God. See, when you know Christ does the saving, you don't struggle with assurance. I counsel people so many times over the years who wanted somehow to mentally arrive, how can I be sure? You will never be sure based on you. You will only be sure based on Jesus Christ. From the day that I really began to understand salvation was not about me, and I say this as God is my witness, I do not struggle with assurance at all. And the only reason is, is because I know it's not based on anything that I've done. It's on the finished and accomplished work of Christ. If I start feeling a little bit unsaved, if I start feeling a little bit out of sorts, it's not God's fault. It's because I've decided to let a little sin come in that I've decided is my pet sin that I'm just going to kind of leave it on the side because I enjoy this right here. That's where my misery comes in. My misery comes in when I won't repent and I like my pet sin. And you have your pet sins. You have ones that are, are going to be there when you get home. Maybe before you even get home. But you know what? Christ died for that sin too. And I know I don't have to live that way. I don't have to live with the misery that comes with having that pet sin. But it was the will of God that his people would have a sure ground of faith. A strong foundation for your hope. Do you think God may have known that we would be living in the days and age in which we're living specifically. You know, it often, we often talk about how people lived in the past and people live in the future, and we lose sight of the fact you've been put here by God's will at this time. Do you think anything in the world surprised God? Absolutely not. And yet, here he's allowed us the privilege of hearing the gospel. Make this the one needful thing in your life Attend to the truth of scriptures. Hear the voice of God. Do not neglect it. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever today, don't neglect what you've heard. Now, I'm not going to call you to come to an altar. I'm not going to call you to come make a profession of faith. I'm not going to call you to come and pray. I'm just going to simply call you to simply obey the Holy Spirit. 
We're not looking for numbers, folks. We're not looking for professions. We're not looking for people that want to just show we're doing something right here. I want you to know, I want you to know the love of God, and I want you to know what His saving grace really is. You're not coming to me for salvation. I can't grant it. No matter what you tell me, no matter what you pray, I cannot grant you salvation. I can't even give you 100% assurance that you have salvation, but I can point you to Christ. And that's where your assurance comes from. Before we observe the Lord's Supper today, can we just pray for just a moment? Father, I want to thank you for this time. And Lord, we have certainly covered a very important matter. And Lord, only you know the hearts of every person here today, including my own. And Lord, if our motives today be something other than pure motives based upon the word of God, may every one of these thoughts just be struck down. But Lord, if we have given your word today, I certainly pray that each, every believer here today would think about their own salvation. They would examine themselves and they would just be certain that they're not allowing these doctrines to slip. They're not allowing the gospel of salvation to grow cold and becoming indifferent. Lord, I pray that you would bring back those who have become cold and indifferent. Lord, you know their heart. And Father, I pray that you would just bring them to repentance and that they would come running back to you. They would just cast themselves at your feet again and just beg you for forgiveness. Father, we know that you've promised that you will not lose one of your own. And even that one, two hundreds that have strayed, Lord, we know that there is a welcome for them if they'll just simply return. Father, I also pray for the unbeliever here today, Lord, if there are any that, Lord, that they would have heard the message today that the Spirit of God is working and that, Lord, they would be reminded not to neglect what they've heard. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would just be with us now as we observe the supper together. Lord, for a believer, there are not many more precious things than to think about our redemption and to think about our ultimate victory. And, Lord, I just pray that you will bless this time and that Christ would be magnified and glorified. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.